Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Train Happy Podcast with me, Tally Rye. This is the podcast that helps you feel good about food, fitness, and your body image. And this week, we are talking all things fertility, and most importantly, fat-positive fertility, with Nicola Salmon, who is author of the book Fat and Fertile, and who you might know on social media as fat-positive fertility. Now, this is, I think, a really interesting topic. We discuss how our hormones play a role in our fertility, what the kind of evidence actually says about the links between weight and fertility. And this is a really interesting conversation. Of course, I just want to add, if you are not ready to listen to conversations like this today around fertility, I know this is a sensitive issue. Um, come back next week. We'd love to you to you know, stick with us, but maybe this isn't the episode for you. But of course, before we get into that, it is time for Train Happy Trooper of the Week. Hello, Tally. I ditched diet culture about four and a half years ago. And since then, I've been on the self-love journey and intuitive eating and intuitive movement is also part of that, which I'm struggling with every now and then, but it gets better. And today I realized I don't have to go to the gym to do movement i can just go for long walks because this is what i really really love to do like go for long walks slash hiking in nature enjoying it with beautiful weather and packing some snacks and just walking and this will be um my thing in the future and i will do it more and i want to explore places and see more of the world and just walk and this is why this is my train happy moment of this week and i just love it and i want everyone out there to know you do not have to go to the gym find movement you enjoy and i'm probably going to find something else also that i will enjoy but this is like a first step into intuitive movement bye well saskia preach i am so on board with that whole message and i love that you are doing the movement you enjoy and i love that that is walking i think we really often put movement into categories of good and bad and valid and invalid and often walking kind of gets dumped in there it doesn't really count it needs to be in a gym i need to be super sweaty i need to do all of these things and there's so many shoulds around what we feel we should be doing but as you say Doing what you love first and foremost is a really great way to bring movement back into your life and find kind of consistency and connection with movement again before you bring in other things. And here's the thing for Saskia and for everyone, you may never step foot in a gym again and that is okay. Intuitive movement really is about bringing, you know, a sense of autonomy to you around your choices, around how you choose to move, how, you know, what feels good for you. And I love that, yeah, I just love Saskia's example um, and kind of testimony to, you know, listening to your body and doing the thing you enjoy. If you want to be Train Happy Trooper of the Week, you can get in touch with us on our WhatsApp number 075-999-27537. Of course, we want to hear from you. Voice notes are amazing. Texts are amazing. And you can follow us on Instagram too, at Train Happy Podcast. We would love to have you there as well. Okay, enough from me. It's time to get into this week's episode of the Train Happy Podcast with the brilliant Nicola Salmon. Nicola, welcome to the Train Happy Podcast. Thank you so much for coming in all the way from Gloucestershire. Oh, I know. It's it's a far, far place to come, but I'm so, so happy to be here with you. You have a very unique job in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a lot of people doing what you do. Oh, no. I um, made it up, so. <laughs> you made it up. 
<laughs> right? And you've created this job out of there being a massive lack for people. You are a fat positivity fertility coach um, and you have done so much work in this space you've written a book you do so much work with people one-to-one I've we met a few years ago and I followed you since then and kind of refer you on to people if it's appropriate and this has probably been like a whole journey to get here of yourself and in my research uh, of learning more about you because I kind of took it for granted that I knew and I was like I really better go do my deep dive here you really had your own path of getting to work in this field, create this job for yourself and specifically focus on helping people in larger bodies with their fertility. And this is a real passion project of yours. So I would just love to hear how how we got here. Mm, it's such a good question. And it's been a real kind of roller coaster ride to get here. But I've always been in a bigger body. My size has varied, you know, bigger and smaller as folks who go on diets often do in their bodies. Um, but for me, it really started when I was about 16, so nearly 22 years ago now. And I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is a condition that affects loads of people. And it was something, you know, about then there wasn't much information about it. There was no internet. I was diagnosed by my doctor. I didn't know anybody else who had it. So it was a real, yeah, kind of interesting thing to be diagnosed with because it's not something I'd ever heard of. And the doctor said, you'll, you'll never get pregnant. You'll never be able to have children of your own. You need to lose weight because that's how it's going to, quote, cure it. And here's the oral contraceptive pill to, quote, regulate your cycles. And that was it. That's all the information I had. I didn't have any follow-up. There was no counseling support or anything. It was just bang, bang, bang. This is what it is. This is how you're, quote, unquote, going to fix it. So off I went on my merry way at 16 years old and had to try and navigate what that looked like. And a lot of that was dieting, as is expected, you know, and I had my parents, my family there, and they obviously wanted the best for me. So that's kind of the road we went down. Weight Watchers, you know, all of the different slimming world, everything, all the different things we tried. And it wasn't really until I was much older that I was able, really able to look back on that incident and point as like, this is when it really started. This is when I really lost my self-esteem, my confidence in my body. It really impacted my self-image. You know, I always thought I was going to be a parent. Mm. So that was a huge shift in my identity of someone who could not become a parent. And yeah, it really impacted how I grew up, the choices I made in my partners, in my own health. So much of that was kind of wrapped up in this diagnosis of PCOS at a young age. But I went on to university. I did a degree in science and then went to work in the NHS for a little bit. But around that time I was living in London and um, I witnessed a traumatic incident where I was living and it impacted my mental health quite a lot. So I tried counseling, I tried therapy, um, antidepressants, but nothing really helped it until randomly one day I walked into an acupuncture clinic. It was in South London. I was just walking past and I thought I need to try something. I was feeling really desperate. Like there was nothing that was helping. I just felt so awful. And I tried it. I tried acupuncture. I'd never had it before. And it was just, it was, it felt magical because of the impact that it had on me really quite quickly. I think it was a few months that I had treatment and then it had such a positive impact on my mental health that I decided to train as an acupuncturist as you do. <laughs> you know, these huge life decisions just on a whim. So I'd signed up, trained for four years as an acupuncturist. And it was really then that I began to learn more about fertility, about hormones, about obviously PCOS, because I had it, you know, you tend to go for the things that impact you the most. So I trained as a fertility acupuncturist in the end, because that was what I was really passionate about. And that's why I saw a lot of folks coming to me to, to be helped with. And it was when I was doing that work that I realized that I wanted to help people more. So I did coaching. I learned about coaching and how emotions and mindset can really impact fertility. So that's kind of how I kind of got my little toes dipped into the online business space of being able to help more people through coaching, through disseminating information online. 
And all kind of while this was all going on in the background, I'd met my husband, we'd got married, we were ready to start having babies or trying to have babies. And it happened really quickly for me. I got pregnant really easily, but I spent the whole of my first pregnancy anxious because I thought something was going to go wrong. And that's what I was told by the healthcare professionals. That's what all the media, everything around me told me was going to happen. So that's what I was expecting. I was expecting to lose the baby. I was expecting to get gestational diabetes. I was expecting to have a really difficult birth, but nothing happened. It was boring, completely unremarkable. And yeah, that was it. And I was like, well, well, why? Like, I expected this to be really hard and it wasn't. I expected it to be really difficult healthcare wise with complications and it didn't happen. Why, why was I told that? And why was my reality so different? And that is really the thing that kickstarted me into this work and researching it and exploring it more and kind of my own journey towards accepting my fat body and rejecting diet culture came through that as well. And when my son was really small, he was about six months old. I really remember thinking, I do not want this for him. I do not want him to think horrible thoughts about his body or think about food in such an all-consuming way. So that's when I was like, fuck diet culture, smash the scales in the garden outside. And that was it. I said, I'm never going to weigh myself again. I'm never going to diet again. And I was so lucky to have like a community on Instagram that I found quite quickly after that of people who were just fat, happy. And I really wanted that for myself. I really wanted to not go back into this yo-yo dieting business that, you know, just is everywhere around us. So it was a long topsy-turvy way of different things and trying different things, but it all kind of ended up accumulating in me being a part of this incredible community of people who accepted their bodies as they were and really beginning to understand for myself that what the doctors say isn't necessarily what's going to happen for me as a fat person and that I have some ability to be able to control that and change that and help other people do the same. And you've had two children yeah. yourself. like. Easily, Again. no issues. No issues. The second one was, we talk, we joke that he was an immaculate conception <laughs> <laughs> because when my first son was born, he got quite sick. It was just like lots of bugs all at once, like coughs and colds and things. And we ended up being intensive care. We were at um, Guys and Thomas's hospital. And yeah, somehow I got pregnant in that time when he was really very unwell and we were both staying at hospital and tag teaming that. So yeah, no idea how he was created, but nine months later he came along and yeah, no problems. It was wild to me that I could have such boring pregnancies and happen so fast when everything around us tells us the complete opposite. There's so much fear mongering, isn't there? And I think what a way to tell a 16 year old that you have PCOS. Oh, and by the way, you can't have kids. There you go. Like that's a really huge life-changing statement to make, to tell someone. And it's so interesting that that ended up not being true. And side note, when I think of people with PCOS, I don't think of people just living in larger bodies. I know that there are people across the size spectrum with PCOS. Um, So, the fact that this is like a, I mean, uh, lose weight, it'll cure your PCOS is really interesting to me because there are people in smaller bodies with PCOS. Mm -hmm. It makes no sense, right? No. Like there are so many people who shared with me because I talk about this quite a lot that they had such a similar experience when they were growing up, like diagnosed with PCOS, told that they would never be able to get pregnant. But you're right. Like there's no logical sense to it, but there's so many people who are in all shapes and sizes who have PCOS and sure there may be a correlation. So, you know, for some folks they do, there is, um, as one rises, the other rises in terms of BMI and the incidence of PCOS, but that doesn't explain a why thin people have it. And also why, why not all fat people then not every fat person has PCOS. It's, it's a condition that you know, happens to some people. It's genetic. Often folks whose parents have had it will go on to have it in a similar way to type 2 diabetes, where there's a lot of kind of insulin resistance, you know, blood sugar issues. So it is not something that we know much about. There is such a lack of research in this field and especially around causes. They, we don't know what causes PCOS. We don't know why it happens. And there is such 
a lack of treatment and support for folks who are navigating it. So it's it's just an area that really needs more work, more research, more funding t- to support people because there are so many people that navigate this. And it's it's not just something that people should get support with when they want to get pregnant. It impacts their whole lives. Yeah. But people never get help until they're ready to start growing their family. How many people are stuck in the diet cycle because of that diagnosis or feel like that is the only way to manage a health condition that there is so much more to it than just a weight component. And yet that is what's kind of singled out. And I think, you know, this whole conversation we're gonna have today around fertility and hormones and all this kind of of stuff. I think what we generally know is that for women's health, there is just a lot less research than there are is for men's health. That impacts all of us. And then there's even less research for those in bigger bodies. So then that impacts those people even more greatly. There's so much we don't know. And yet a lot of men are making absolutes and making life-changing decisions and diagnoses for people I think without understanding the full ramifications of that. And that can be, you know, in the same way that, and we'll get into how BMI is used as a barrier to uh, help with fertility and IVF and all these things. Um, And these are kind of like absolutes in healthcare currently. And yet, like we said, there's so much we don't know. And I'm sure through your research, you've found plenty of holes in the argument that BMI is a complete barrier to fertility care absolutely I mean from what you said before like women are treated as just little men like in the research we're just assumed that we'll our bodies will act exactly the same way and because we have cycles because we have this reproductive cycle where our hormones vary over the month or longer it was too complicated to include us in the research because of all these variables which is why historically it's all been done on men and I think it was only like the 1990s when it was compulsory to starting to include women in clinical trials for like medications and drugs. Which is wild, which is actually wild. You know, like, like So only in my lifetime. It is just bonkers. And it's, yeah, like you said about the research around folks in bigger bodies, there are so many flaws in the research because people in bigger bodies haven't been taken into account. Like only recently I've started to look at some of the research around some really common tests that we use when we are wanting to get pregnant. Things like pregnancy tests and um, ovulation predictor kits, which like measure when you're ovulating. And for so many folks, they don't get a good response with them. They don't find they work or they find that they, when they're doing pregnancy tests, they get a test much later than they expected. And as I was diving into this, you know, there are only a few papers, there is not much on it, but it's it's a well-documented fact that they work less well for people in bigger bodies. And it's not because we're somehow defective or there's something wrong with us. It's just because of our total volume. Like we just have a higher blood volume. Therefore, it makes sense that the concentration of something is going to be smaller <laughs> because we've got a higher total volume. But nobody's making those dots, nobody's thinking, oh, well, maybe folks in bigger bodies need a different pregnancy test or they need to use their ovulation in a different way or with their blood test. Like we don't take this into account in so many ways. And so many people are suffering the negative consequences of that. So, you know, a classic example that's coming up recently is the Roe versus Wade in America where women's rights are being stripped away from them in terms of being able to access abortion care for fat folks. If they don't know they're pregnant until a few weeks down the line, that seriously reduces the amount of options that they have in those countries. And we know that some of the medications that they have for the emergency contraceptive don't work for folks in bigger bodies either. So there's so many ways that they are negatively impacted by this lack of research, both as women and as folks in bigger bodies. And that's seriously scary, isn't it? Mm. That is really scary because those are, you know, very huge consequences to people just only considering one body type and and not considering you know what the context might be for other people and so I suppose the best place to start with this then is to talk about BMI and talk about how BMI impacts uh, access to fertility which I think is one of the most heartbreaking decisions people are given because for those who have maybe spent a lot of their life dieting to be told that unless you are a certain BMI you are not able to have children personally if I was given that kind of decision 
I wouldn't know what to do mm. because what an awful position to put people in, first off. Like, what an utterly devastating position to be in. You either lose weight or you can't have a family. Mm-hmm. And I think that is so heartbreaking. And I'm sure a story, sadly, you hear all too often. Oh, every day. And people are told that you obviously don't want it enough if you can't lose this weight. Like they are emotionally manipulated by their doctors, their healthcare providers on a daily basis. And, you know, are conditioned to believe that it's somehow their fault that they can't access this healthcare, which should be freely available to every person who wants to grow their family. But it's so frustrating because like you said, we know people across their their BMI can have healthy pregnancies, can actually conceive, can do all of this, and yet this barrier. So what are the current barriers in for um, accessing IVF? I presume this is mostly IVF treatment. So in the UK, we have something called the NICE guidelines, which are like the guidelines that overarch all of our healthcare system. And they suggest that folks should get their BMI under 30 for accessing any kind of fertility support. But the CCGs, who are the people who kind of in each area hold the pots of money, they have a blanket ban pretty much across the board in the UK of 30 30 for all treatments. So that's IVF, IUI, medications that can help people ovulate, especially for folks with PCOS. In Wales, they are now just going through a process of maybe extending that and widening it to 35, but still across the UK is a BMI of 30. And that impacts, I think it's over a third of people who are in reproductive age, you know, women who want to grow, grow their family. So this is a huge huge population of people that are not being supported and served in this process. I mean, do you know the statistics of how common it is to struggle with fertility? I say this because I don't know, well, maybe you, this was something really present for you, but I've spent my whole life not trying to get pregnant. Yeah, <laughs> And I'm told, like, right? can I get pregnant? <laughs> I don't actually know. I've never tried. I don't know. I'm going to find out. And this is a conversation I have with Jack, my fiance, all the time. I, we kind of always look at each other going, the older I've gotten, and I think this is massively thanks to social media, the more I'm acutely aware of how much we have historically taken fertility for granted mm. and that we're seeing so many stories of people across the size spectrum um, struggling to have children, miscarrying, um, having to use IVF. I mean, we've got several friends who are on that journey and, you know, it's the kind of thing where when you're a kid, it's always like, just, you know, make sure whatever you do, don't get pregnant. Whatever you do, don't get pregnant. So when you are ready, it feels like, you know, A, it's a minefield in general. And then B, if you're in a bigger body, it's, there's so many more barriers and obstacles. Mm. So I think it's one in six is the most recent statistic yeah. of people who want to grow their families, then going on to need extra support, whether that's more tests with their doctor or accessing fertility treatment, either privately or pub- with public health care. But yeah, it's a huge group of people that, that need to go through this. And there are so many still stigmas associated with talking about it. It's got a lot better over the past five to 10 years, but there is still so much stigma. And especially for fat folks, because they're really afraid of what people are going to say. And rightly so, mm-hmm. because so many people are judgmental um, around them wanting to grow their family. And so they don't talk to people. They don't share that they're going through this with their friends and family because of the fear that they have of the stigma that they'll receive. So it's so isolating. And it's, you know, having that support network, having people you can talk to, having a community around you can be really powerful and really affirming when you're navigating this. So it's something that I'm really passionate about helping folks find is like their own community of people that they can talk to and share with and not f- be f- afraid of that stigma. Yeah, it was nice even just reading the comments on your Instagram posts of people. I just mm. find it fascinating reading people's stories and own lived experience. And I social media has so you know, there's so many downsides, but I think there's some real positives there that people who feel can feel so alone and isolated are like, firstly, this isn't just me. There are other people going through this. And secondly, I can have hope here in mm. what feels like a hopeless situation. And I think, you know, morale, I'm sure, is a huge component in this process, mm. you know, in terms of how you feel mentally and, you know, where your nervous system is at oh, and absolutely. all those things. So with... BMI obviously we have these limits what I find interesting and I and 
I'm curious, especially with the IVF process, I remember speaking to someone who had been told to lose weight to access IVF. Actually, it kind of turned out that the issue was with, the fertility issue was with the partner and not the person trying to conceive. And yet they were still being told to lose weight to access IVF. Why are we putting so much onus on the person trying to conceive? Mm, It's a really loaded question because there are so many layers to it. But the base in the UK with the NHS, the base there is money. It's about Mm. finding a socially acceptable way to limit who can and cannot access healthcare. And right now that socially acceptable way is, you know, don't let the fat people have it. That is really what it comes down to. But there's so much underpinning that in terms of like our foundational beliefs about what it means to be fat and what, you know, is fat healthy? Is fat unhealthy? Do these people have the quote unquote right to then grow their families if they can't even take care of themselves? There are so many horrible, negative and completely untrue and unfounded beliefs that people hold about fat people to begin with. But when we start to dig into like the reasons that we're given as to why people can't access healthcare, a lot of it is to do with anesthesia. They're told that it's unsafe for them to go through that process of IVF because they need to have this anesthetic, even though they'll happily then say, well, you can have this weight loss surgery, which also includes anesthetic. Like, yeah, it's just wild. Yeah, you're not, you can't have surgery in the size you are now, but we can offer you weight loss surgery, mm-hmm. which is yeah. a huge major surgery, abdominal surgery. Yeah, it doesn't make sense at all. Um, but another one of the main ones is around pregnancy risk. So a lot of folks will say, oh, it's totally unethical for me to help you get pregnant because of all the dangers in pregnancy. And I've done so much research into this area of, of field of medicine because it's such a big thing that keeps coming up and coming up. And the research is not clear cut at all. It's roughly a third of the research shows that there is this correlation and they haven't found a cause. They haven't said this causes this biologically, which means this happens. Um, So it is only a correlation. And the rest of the research is not either it doesn't exist or it's not statistically significant. So they are basing this huge fact that everybody states the doctor state absolute yes Mm. and it is not based on absolute evidence Mm. and it is massively sensationalized when they speak to patients about it so if you go and see your doctor they'll say something like well you're five times more likely to get gestational diabetes and that sounds really scary but I think it's like 2% of folks in straight-sized bodies get it and 10% of folks in my sister-in-law who is really petite had gestational diabetes like she's like five foot and tiny Mm. um because once again most pretty much all (laughs) conditions people in bodies of all sizes experience all conditions absolutely and even though there is an increase for folks like still 90 percent of fat folks don't get it it's not a sure thing most people don't have it most people have a completely unremarkable pregnancy yet we are basing the fact that we're denying folks this healthcare and taking away their consent and their body autonomy around accessing this because of this increased risk and it's so likely that the increased risk is due to the way that we are treating these people the increased stress that they're put under because of the way that we're talking to them in these healthcare situations because of the soup of diet culture that we live in that's constantly telling them that they are less than that they are not worthy that they need they to make their body smaller you mm. i mean you said how anxious you were during your first Absolutely. pregnancy you know we know how much our mental health can take a physical toll on our body. You know, you are feeling physically feeling that anxiety and your nervous system is feeling that. And this is all connected and going, you know, feeding the baby that you're carrying. To think that shaming people and scaring people during that time is gonna really help and lead to positive outcomes is once again, wild to me. It it just makes no sense, right? Like it's completely illogical that they think that, you know, it's that cruel to be kind thinking of like, oh, we're just trying to help people lose weight. Yet we have so much evidence that shows that people should not be losing weight in pregnancy or or ever, of course, but like- But especially during but pregnancy. But especially during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Yet in the UK, the Royal College of Midwives are sponsored by Slimming World. And it just, yeah, it it's makes icky. my skin crawl. It's icky, isn't it? 
Mum's the Word is a brand new parenting podcast hosted by me, Ashley James. Pregnancy, piles, and all the other problems that come with parenting, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. Join me each week on my journey through motherhood as we celebrate the amazing highs as well as the lows. As it's my first time, we'll have celebrities, experts, and hopefully you guys too who will help me figure out what the hell I'm supposed to be doing. Find us wherever you got this podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And so for those who do find themselves in that position where they're being given that ultimatum or and they're kind of trying to find help does this mean if you go private that there's it's easier to access i know i mean that's a huge privilege in and of itself but i just wonder if there's a difference between the nhs and going private in terms of bmi barriers to um ivf and fertility care not much unfortunately especially in the uk we are so far behind a lot of our european counterparts and american counterparts the majority of clinics in the UK have a barrier of 35. Mm-hmm. There are some that will go up to 40, but it's quite rare. And even though they have this slightly better limits, they still encourage people to lose weight. They still encourage people to diet. They still encourage people to, you know, go through those really arduous processes because they claim that it will make their stats better. You know, they claim that it will be more effective or that it will be easier for them to get pregnant. But again, the research just does not support that. And it's so frustrating that people have to make really difficult decisions about how how they can grow their family. You know, some people go to Europe, some people just have to go on an intentional weight loss journey because they have no other options. Like if you're in a financially unstable position, like some people just don't have those choices to be able to make. So it's, you know, it really does impact the people who you know, in our poorer sectors so much more because they don't have those options. They can't financially afford that. Some people remortgage their houses. Some people have to sell their car. Like it's really difficult decisions that people are having to make. And especially in the times we're in right now, people are really running out of options and they shouldn't have to be in this position in the first place because that care should be theirs. So there are potentially clinics in the US that are offering Mm. um, IVF at a higher BMI level. Yeah, they generally have kind of 40, 45, 50, and some don't have any, which is amazing. There is a clinic in Ireland that is really good. They don't have much of a BMI limit. Like they they say it's on an individual basis. And, you know, I, t- I send lots of p- patients there because it is just that bit closer than going to like Greece or Turkey. Um, but yeah, it's still a massive thing to do if you want to have IVF. Like you need so many appointments, you go for so many scans. So it's basically taking like two or three weeks out of your life. And for folks who work, that's not easy to go and, you know, have a holiday in Ireland while you're going through an IVF process. And they're process. private clinics as well. So yeah. I presume there's a cost there. I mean, of course. this is, yeah, it's, it's tough, isn't it? There's mm-hmm. not only the kind of healthcare barriers, but the financial barriers. I'm really all about bodily autonomy and I don't want to shame people who feel like they, that is their only option mm. because like I said if I was put in that position then I might feel like that's my only option too and I just kind of you know I don't have any judgment there I think I really get it yeah. um but we know that that can, that can be really harmful in the long term so how do you work with people you know when you're when these when people come to you and they say like Nicola like we've been trying it's hard I don't know what to do I'm scared of you know going through IVF or you know what people are going to say 
how do you work with people in that way? So we kind of come at it from lots of different perspectives because there's so many different things at play when people want to get pregnant. So if they've decided they don't want to go down the intentional weight loss route, which like you said, you know, it's really important for me that I explain to people that they, you know, there's no shame in doing that, and but they should be fully aware of all the risks involved, all the risks to getting pregnant, because once you're nutrient deficiency, like that does impact getting pregnant. So once people have made that, you know, have fully consented to making that decision, we look at how they can support their health without diets and weight loss. So that includes eating enough, that's that's a whole sentence for me. Like it's not eating enough this, eating enough that. That is the only nutritional advice I ever give people. Like, are you eating enough? And so many people aren't, especially fat folks who've been on diets their whole life. We do not know what eating enough looks like. There are so many rules that we inherit from different places and different diets and different articles and things we've read and people have told us. So it's really just about breaking that down with people, what rules they have, what are they telling themselves about the quote unquote right way to eat is, and how can we make sure they're just getting enough food for their body to feel safe, to know that it's okay to get pregnant. The next one is movement. It's all about finding ways that really help people feel good in their bodies and just finding a way to feel supportive because we know that exercise is brilliant for fertility. It's fantastic. No matter what size your body is, moving your body is awesome for fertility, for regulating hormones. There are so many positive impacts of it, but so many folks historically have a really negative relationship with exercise. So it's about finding ways that feel good or feel sustainable or feel supportive, whatever way they want to frame that movement and just starting really small and finding things that feel good and building on that and then rest. So those are kind of like my three key components when helping people really figure out what health means to them. So making sure they're getting enough sleep and good quality sleep, making sure they're not on their phone, like checking things from work when they're not supposed to be working, making sure that they have active rest where they're doing things that they enjoy, getting outside, you know, just all the different types of rest that we need to really feel good and feel like safe. So safety is such a huge kind of part of this in helping our bodies feel like they're grounded, they've got a good place to land and that they've got all their needs met. It's Isn't it interesting how they might feel like quite simple mm. things and yet they can be really revolutionary. I mean, as you and I know, and you know, I work with so many people in their relationship with movement um, and we know how fraught people's relationship can be with food. And I had a client recently from a movement perspective, she wanted to go swimming and historically she always used to feel totally wiped out after swimming, always wiped out. And we were just gonna see how it went and she went swimming and afterwards, and she's been on a whole intuitive eating journey before she met me working with a dietitian, and then she kind of came to work with me from the movement perspective. She, you know, had gone through her swimming and everything. And she was like, you know what? This is a whole different experience now that I'm adequately fueled because I was always undernourished doing any form of physical activity. And I used to just feel so tired and so drained and so exhausted all the time. And that was another reason why I didn't want to engage with exercise because it was just exhausting on so many levels because it's so linked to food restriction and you just simply don't have enough calories in your body and isn't it amazing how our bodies respond when we're adequately fueled and that can be on like a movement basis but like logically that is on a fertility basis as well of our body going yeah like you're good you don't feel you know your brain's not going oh we are chronically deprived here we are chronically undernourished underfueled and like you say it's interesting that theme of safety in our bodies and that theme of and i i think a lot of that comes from that connection, that reconnection that and that trust that is eroded by diet culture, that's eroded mm-hmm. through all of those things. And I'm sure that's a lot of what you work on with people. Oh, absolutely. There's so many people who say, I feel my body is broken. I can't trust my body because it's not able to do this one thing that I really want it to do. So a lot of the work is about really rebuilding that trust and rebuilding that relationship with your body because we are told that our bodies are wrong, that our bodies aren't what, don't look like what they're supposed to and take up too much space. So really reconnecting with our bodies and trusting that they are working for our best intentions. They're keeping us alive. They are keeping us safe. They are doing their best to keep us out of harm's way. And really acknowledging that, even if it feels really difficult when they're not doing this one thing that we really want them to do is really powerful because it helps people be just in that moment and not 
always living in the future because mm. that's something that's mm-hmm. so common. People are like, well, I'm going to put all my life on hold until I get pregnant and then I'll be able to do this and do that and go there and change jobs. And some of that is, all of it is really valid, but it can be a really hard place to be in for a long time if it takes longer than you anticipate it to get pregnant. So rebuilding that trust is vital, is really vital. I mean, you hear so much of when people do talk about fertility of like I say, in, in kind of across the size spectrum, but it's like, you know, it always happens when you're not trying, you know, that's kind of that really. And I'm sure that what, if you, if someone listening is like going through their own journey with all of this, like massive eye roll moment of like, mm-hmm. oh, that's so unhelpful. <laughs> um, but is there an element of truth to that? I don't know. Is there, do I, do I just be the annoying person and ask that question? It's a good question. And there is a grain of truth to it because when we're talking about nervous systems, mm. we are so used to being in this chronic stress state. Mm-hmm. And especially for fat folks, like that is a really normal place for us to inhabit because we need to be on high alert all the time to be like, am I going to fit in that seat? Is that person going to say something horrid, horrid to me? You know, it feels like you are constantly on high alert to be navigating the world safely. And so when you are in this chronic stress state, your body's like, oh, well, I guess it's not safe for me to get pregnant right now because I need to run from a tiger or, you know, like there's a famine, like all of these things which our body hasn't evolved from, like seeing those as dangers. And obviously there is a huge variation in this. This isn't just like you're either in stress state and you're not in stress state. Like our body is inextricably more complicated and nuanced than that. But when people can go from that chronic stress state to even like tiny pockets of feeling safer, feeling more relaxed, being able to have some of that downtime and just kind of that, oh, oh yeah, that, that feels better. That's when your body can go, okay, well, we can now take these resources that we were using to keep you alive and use them for helping your digestion, helping your cells regrow and also reproductive health, like keeping everything that's non-essential to keep you alive moving in the background. So the more of that space that you can inhabit when it feels safe to do so, the more your body can use its resources to focus on those things. Um, So yeah, it's just about getting your needs met over and over and over again, asking what do I need in this moment? What do I need in this moment? And that is a practice that I always come back to with people of just getting those needs met as every opportunity you can because again we're conditioned to put everybody else's needs above our own yes oh hugely and if we think of you know maslow's hierarchy of needs for people listening it's like the pyramid shape basic needs are food shelter, uh, shelter water a- and sleep i yeah. think and if you think about how much dieting disrupts that mm-hmm. but especially when it comes to the food part um and the sleep part, like, you know, it can really impact all of that as well. Those are huge things that we probably take for granted. Um, and yeah, getting that in a much kind of secure place and in a positive place is the foundation. You oh, know? absolutely. And it's not, it's intentional, right? That mm-hmm. those needs are being disrupted. Like the angry feminist in me is like, of course they want to disrupt that. Of course they want to yes. make it really difficult for us to get those basic needs met because then we can't get our other needs met and then, you know, generate more power and accumulate more power and help help ourselves. And it's just so frustrating that so many folks are in this never ending cycle of of struggling to get those basic needs met because we all deserve to have them met and more. We do. We do. The other condition that I think impacts people a lot, women a lot, is endometriosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another one where if you have that diagnosis, um, you know, you're kind of told it will, you know, it's going to impact your fertility. And I think of like Molly May, right, was told she couldn't, she didn't really think she could get pregnant, had not really tried was not not trying but wasn't kind of like well I don't think I can so we'll see and then I was obviously just had a baby Mm. um you know there are a lot of people in that position and uh, once again Molly May is in a in a small straight-sized body so this is a condition that affects so many people yes um how does this impact our fertility and what do we need to know about this so endometriosis is again surprise surprise so underfunded under-researched and it is a condition that is 
it can be really debilitating for people. So for folks who don't know much about it, it's when the cells from your endometrium or the lining of your uterus go wandering off into places where they shouldn't be. And that happens really common, like it's a really common thing to happen. Lots of people get this. It's not some weird thing that happens just to folks with endometriosis, but our bodies are really good at going around and finding cells where they shouldn't be and getting rid of them. And that doesn't happen as much for folks with endometriosis. And then when you're in your menstrual cycle, the lining of your uterus then sheds. But for folks who have those cells in places where they shouldn't be, then that can cause inexplicable amounts of pain. It can lead to really heavy bleeding. People cannot function often when they are going through their period because of the pain and the bleeding. It just makes life completely unmanageable. And I can't emphasize like how much pain these people experience and how debilitating this is for people to go about their day. Like they cannot go to work, they cannot go to school, they cannot do their day-to-day functions. It's that debilitating. Um, but historically, I think at the moment, it's about seven years for people to get diagnosed from when they go and see their doctor for the first time. It takes that long for them to get um, a diagnosis of what this is and how it, and any kind of support, because there is so, so little support for this. Um, to get diagnosed, you actually need to have a surgery. So they need to go in and explore and find the cells and recognize those cells um, as kind of endometriosis within your your uterus and other areas. Um, and then there really is no cure for endometriosis. It's just managing the symptoms. So there's medications that can help with the pain. There's medications that can help with the blood flow. But really it is about management rather than cure. And again, we don't know why this happens to folks. It is possibly linked to stress and inflammation, um, but we really don't know why. And again, it varies hugely how it impacts people's fertility. Um, because we have this such lack of research and because people take so long to get diagnosed, we don't really have a clear picture. And some people, they get pregnant really easily. Some people, it takes them a really long time. And yeah, it is such a big gap in how we're supporting folks with their healthcare right now. And it needs to be something that is given so much more, is so much more talked about within the media, is given so much more compassion for people who are working. And yeah, people like need to be given so much more help when they are navigating life, not only when they're growing their family, but also like throughout the time when they're menstruating. There's just another big gap, isn't it? Mm-hmm. In, Huge. in what we know. Oh, it's just so frustrating, isn't it? Just sitting <laughs> here like... Okay, where's the funding? Where's the research? Where are people trained in this area? Why why is it taking seven years to be diagnosed? Like Yeah, it should not be happening. And if it was a man's disease, Ugh. you know that it people would be on it, this would be diagnosed like just like this. And yeah, it is just like it makes you want to scream. I imagine so much of your work is just like, <laughs> ah, like, come on, like, why? <laughs> like, if we could just, you know, ask the right questions and, mm-hmm. you know, just think a little bit more outside the box, I think people would lo- be a lot better off. Yeah. Treat people like humans, mm. want to get to the bottom of what's the problem for them, believe them when they say how much pain they're in or that they don't eat junk food for their whole lives. Like there is so much of this about just meeting each other human to human and believing what people are saying and being compassionate, empathetic and helping as much as you're able to in whatever capacity you're meeting them at. Yeah, because I mean, obviously you adopt a health every size approach and, you know, a huge part of that approach is just like just a baseline of respect for people. And that is huge in this area. When you, like you say, so many people are judged before they've even opened their mouths. Before they've, you know, if you walk in a doctor's room, you feel like people, you know, that that doctor has been taught mm-hmm. to have so many assumptions about you, about your lifestyle, about your health, about your fertility, about all of these things mm-hmm. without actually knowing any information about you bar what they see and that is really the shit part isn't it like that is the most unfair part of it all that this is a systemic issue that you know come you know trickles down through kind of healthcare training and medical training 
And there are a lot of people that suffer as a result. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of people die as a result of this. Mm. Like there are so many people that you hear now on social media who've shared their stories that are in bigger bodies that had diagnoses of whether that's cancer or another life-threatening condition that wasn't taken seriously, that the doctors just said, oh, you know, go away and lose weight and come back in a bit. And then it gets missed and it gets missed and it gets missed. And then they have to suffer, you know, the worst consequences possible of, of not being able to continue their lives. And that is shocking and appalling and we shouldn't have to have these stories to make us want to make change mm. but shouldn't have to get that bad no it should not and it is just the, the, the system needs to change but like you say like this is years and decades of systems of kind of doctors teaching these things to their students and it keep being passed down and passed down but we need to make a change to the systems because people are suffering i feel like what we need as well is like some you know, OBGYN doctors to, especially in the UK, like, do you think, you know what, I'm going to create the first health every size fertility clinic. Like, oh, wouldn't that be I incredible? Wish. It's on my dream board. <laughs> yeah. Like, wouldn't that be amazing that someone kind of goes into that area and, mm -hmm. and decides to do things for themselves? That would be, yeah, that would be really, really cool. Um, planting the seed to anyone. Get in touch. <laughs> anyone listening. <laughs> the thing is, it would be seed. so profitable as well oh, because there are so like, many I've people. Got a whole I've got a list. I've yeah. got hundreds of people that would happily pay money to come and get this service, mm. but they just cannot find it. And it is infuriating because it's possible, it's safe, it's effective. And, you know, people are willing to to pay to get this done, but there is nobody that will do it. And it's just... I'm like, from a business perspective, come on, people, let's get it together. As always, there's a whole underserved population here mm -hmm. and they have, you know, they want to spend the money on yeah. these, these things. It makes it makes business sense. Someone just... Take it, right? Yeah, go, go, go. <laughs> um, people listening then, like, and they're like, okay, where do I even begin on this kind of fertility journey? Like, what do I, where, where would I go from here after kind of listening to this episode? The first thing that I always tell people who are in that like, oh, I'm not sure phase, get started. Because there are so many people that I know that I've talked to that put it off. They said, well, I thought I would go on that one last diet to try and lose some weight before I started. But then I never lost the weight and I waited and I waited and I waited and I wish I just started a few years ago. So if you are ready financially, mentally, emotionally, there is no reason to believe that you're going to have any problems getting pregnant and just, just get started and see how you get on. If you are worried, if you are concerned, you know, I have so many resources on my Instagram, which is Fat Positive Fertility. I try and share as much of the research as I can in like a really easy to you understand do. way. Yeah. Because people, you know, not everybody has a science degree. Mm -hmm. Not everybody can go and read the science, these research articles and figure out what they mean because a lot of them, A, are really stigmatizing to fat people and are really difficult to navigate with a lot of the uh, language that they use. So I try and like make that information as easily available as possible for people so they can use it to then go and advocate for themselves with their doctor, with their healthcare provider. But yeah. Find, you know, depending on what kind of person you are, if you love the research, I've got loads of that. If you just want to, you know, learn more about other people's experiences, like you said before, people leave comments, people share their stories. Um, there's a whole community of people who are navigating that too. So finding a piece of community that can be really helpful. Yeah, whatever information that you need, it's there, it's available. There are some great nutritionists who work with folks. Tally obviously works with folk with movement, which is a huge, mm -hmm. a huge part of it. Like whatever piece of that puzzle is for you, there are so many resources and tools available. And I'm always available to answer questions if people want to message me. Like I, I take so much time for that because I know how alone and isolated people can feel. And even just get like a quick message between us can be mm -hmm. really powerful in helping people go. I'm not alone. There are people here to support me. And people who believe in me, because I think mm -hmm. what you do really beautifully is you give people that hope mm. of and a lot where they feel like the door gets closed a lot in their face. You're saying, no, no, no. Like there are other things Come we in. can try. There are other things we can do. Like this is not a hopeless Yeah. There are always choices. I'm sure lots of your clients have gone on to have healthy pregnancies, healthy babies. Oh, yeah. That's probably the best part. And it's once people give themselves that permission to try or yeah. give themselves that permission to be like, yes, I can do this. And it's okay for me to want this. It's okay for me to do this at my size. 
it's surprisingly quick how things then change for them. Yeah, like the people that I work with, even people who just read my book or follow me on Instagram, I get so many messages from people like, I just like followed some of the stuff that you said, you know, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to do it Mm -hmm. all. You don't have to change everything. The biggest bit is that believing that you are capable Mm. of this, that your body is capable of this and that it is okay for you to do it. That Mm. is the biggest thing that you can give yourself, that permission slip. And do you think um, age is a factor as well? Like, you know, that there's like, I'm 32 now, so I'm kind of conscious of this 35 number (laughs) that I have kind of just got in my head. (laughs) And I know like, oh, the big, you know, you gotta have, you gotta get pregnant before thirty-five. Um, and I'm trying to kind of be calm about it. Um, I'm not getting pregnant tomorrow. So, what are your thoughts on that factor? It's it's a factor. It's one of a million variables, right? Like we know from some of the research that as age goes on, it does decline. It's not a cliff that you fall off. You don't get to thirty-five or thirty, and all of a sudden, like, pew, like all of a sudden, you can't get pregnant. That's not how it works. But we do know that it doesn't, it is impacted with age. So what I recommend to folks is that don't get caught up in the numbers. Like I know a birthday feels like a big milestone, but it's just another day. It's just, you're just one more day older. You're not a whole year older than you were yesterday. And you've got to make it happen for you. Like if you weren't ready five years ago, you weren't ready five years ago. You made that decision with the information that you had and you made the best possible decision for you then. And whatever happens, wherever we are right now, whatever age you are, we'll work with that. Like it's never the end. You know, there's always options. There's always, you know, you can adopt embryos if you want to get pregnant, but your eggs have aged differently and that's not a viable option. There is surrogacy, there is adopt, like there is lots of ways that you can grow your family that look very different, that mm. are totally there for you to explore. And sometimes being a parent can look different like some you don't have to have your own children to be a mother to Mm. have mothering energy and share that with your nieces and your nephews or children of your friends or your godchildren like there's so many ways that you can be a parent or a mother without having your own children if that's not something that has happened for you in your life so there's lots of ways to explore it but there are so many options and so many fulfilling ways like being a parent doesn't have to be the be all and end all of of life, which it can sometimes feel when you are in the middle of this and you can not see how your life can be complete without children. So before we before we wrap up, um, Nicola, you spoke about movement being a fantastic way to support mm-hmm. fertility. And like I said, this is another one of the amazing benefits of moving your body. Um, that I really try to drive home t- to people because like I said, let go of it of what it might change your physical appearance whatever like if you realize that there can be really big repercussions on your life oh yeah it, it uh it feels so much more meaningful and we build that intrinsic motivation i have to ask you what has your been your most recent train happy moment and yeah how do you engage with movement um and how do you encourage clients to engage with movement so mm. three questions I'll let you go where you want to start. (laughs) (laughs) So trying to remember the first one. My favorite train happy moment recently, I've been doing a lot of wild swimming. So on Sunday, I was in this gorgeous little private lake in the middle of the woods for a very cold, I think it was six degree dip, (gasps) swimming around the lake. It was just heaven it was just like the most magical i mean it was shitting freezing Mm -hmm. but it was just the most glorious thing i've been doing it since lockdown um i used to swim in the thames which was beautiful it's really good there's some people that swim near you yeah oh i know i know (laughs) one of my best friends swims every morning in her woolly hat and gloves and you ain't getting me like i'll go i will go give again let's get to at least spring yeah. Spring, summer, I'm Warming down. Up a bit. <laughs> I'm down. Depths of winter, not so much. But I've got tons of friends who are so into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think swimming is, and you know what? I think swimming is such a beautiful thing. And I think for people in larger bodies, I think that's always felt not maybe such an easy option because there's the whole like, I've got to be in a swimsuit mm-hmm. or and all that kind of stuff. Or if I want to do cold water swimming and I might want to wear some sort of like rash vest or sweat, um, not, what's it called? Wetsuit. <laughs> Wetsuit. Um, that that's harder to come by in my size and all those sorts of things. But also like, oh my goodness, so freeing. Mm-hmm. And your body loves it. Yes. Like on from like a joint's 
and just perspective. Mm-hmm. Like your body loves it. Yeah. And there are so many fat people in the outwater mm-hmm. swimming. Like it really feels like a properly inclusive yes. group of people. It's well, wild. It's like amazing. I feel like there's all shapes and sizes and mm-hmm. all kind of backgrounds. And it's just a really like brings together like such a cross-section of society, doesn't it? Absolutely. And nobody cares what you look yes. like. It's just everybody's just there for themselves, just there for the swim, whether that's in the cold or not. And it's just glorious. And you're right. Like I have the same problem. I don't wear a wetsuit because it's really difficult to get one in my mm-hmm. size. But that is one of the glorious things about being fat. They call it their bioprene. Well, I was about <laughs> to say, you know, I mean, I consider myself so straight size, but I know that since I've gained weight, like just generally, not so cold so much. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a real benefit at times. Um, and so, yeah, when swimming and stuff, when people are like absolutely freezing, I'm like, I'm all right. I've got a little bit of an extra layer. Like I feel good about yeah, this. Like, and I'm the quite pleased. Do. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, there's there's clearly evolutionary reason why we this exists. Yeah, we've got the walruses, the narwhals. They've all got these gorgeous blubbery bits. Yeah, like it's uh, wonderful. Yeah, so it, there's there's um, there's a real world use. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so I suppose helping people engage with joyful movement themselves. Yes. swimming is a fantastic option. Like we said, is there anything else you kind of recommend? Are there any guidelines? I know obviously there's so many guidelines around resistance training, 150 minutes a week. Uh, all of that stuff but are we all in the bin yeah i agree it's a case of move in a way that you find enjoyable and if you can do that consistently like start there before we start bringing in any of that stuff like let's get let's just find consistent movement first and foremost absolutely and we go i often ask folks lots of different questions around their movement and what did they enjoy doing when they were little like what Mm -hmm. did they really love to do when they were like five years old um and also what's achievable like we start really where they're at so if that's five minutes of walking great we'll start there wherever they are at that finding something that is going to feel achievable and it's not going to feel like a hurdle to them something else that i do quite regularly is morris dancing (laughs) but do you know what my it's amazing my sister's gone through one one of her hyper fixations has been morris dancing um and she she really wants to do it and i was like you know what that's classic my sister only she would do those things but as you do too. But also like, <laughs> it's so why good, not? Fun. You know, I mean, it is coming back in fashion. It they is. were on the Brits. Did you they see? Were? With they the were. Wet leg, they were on the Brits. It's coming very cool. We definitely have a few more young people within our um, band of dancers now, which is very exciting. But yeah, it is high intensity. You will not believe how exhausted I am after some of these dancers. And it's just... It's all jumping around. Yeah. Skipping around. And and <laughs> it's just a bit of fun. And it is so enjoyable for any international listeners google english (laughs) morris dancing because it's very it's an english thing like it's just but you know they have it in australia now in canada yeah you're carrying on a a historic tradition which is also very cool it is it is a bit of fun and yeah you get to wear bells which but we haven't had morris dancing as a train happy moment before so you can take that prize we've had axe throwing we've had all sorts oh but my gosh when people bring on new stuff that's like my favorite so we can add that <laughs> to the list yay <laughs> nicola this has been an absolute joy i think i hope like i said i hope a lot of people feel informed empowered and most importantly hopeful mm. hearing you speak and I, I really think your work does inspire that kind of you have such a positive outlook on this um, as much as there's plenty to be angry about, I think you also have a lot to encouragement and positivity. And I, I really love that. So where can people find you? Where can they find your work? And if people potentially want to work with you, how can they get in touch? So most of my stuff is on Instagram at Fat Positive Fertility. You can send me a message there. Like All the resources are there for anything that you want to find. I've also written a book called Fat and Fertile, which is on Amazon. So you can grab it there. But yeah, like any questions, any resources you want pointing to, I am so happy to help. So just get in touch. And you have tons. You you mm-hmm. offer so much and there's plenty for free. Oh, yeah. As well as paid options. There's so much stuff. So you're really great. There's Yeah, you're, you're really... Covering um, all the areas. You really have. You really have. <laughs> this has been an absolute joy. Thank, thank you. Thank you. So, no, thank you so much for coming all the way in from Gloucestershire. Um, yeah, maybe we'll get to do this again. I hope so. I hope so. This has been a joy. 
But that is it for this week's episode of the Train Happy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you took something away from this episode. And if you did, please do let us know on social media. You can find us on Instagram at Train Happy Podcast. And we do want to hear from you. We want your questions. We want to hear your train happy moments. And we'd love to feature you as Train Happy Trooper of the Week. So remember, you can get in touch with us via our WhatsApp. It is 07599927537. And whatever podcast platform you're choosing to listen to us on, please rate and review. It really helps the show and it really helps spread the train a happy message. And that is it for this week. I'll be back with a brand new episode for you next Monday. See you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.